The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 8th, 2016, the cling tightly to one tiny piece of good news edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins me from New York. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Sorry for being late. Thank you both for being so nice and patient. With me. I visited your office yesterday, Emily, at the New York Times. I just dropped by because I was in the Times building and uh, quelled with your colleagues about you for a bit. So they, they're very oh, fond of you. that's sweet. Yeah. That's nice. I'm sorry I missed you. For what purpose did the gentleman go to uh, the New York Times? Oh, the New York Times is an investor in Alice Obscura. So I was just meeting with the people who invested in us. So I had a few minutes to kill until I stopped by to see the Times Magazine. That was, of course, John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, who was in Boston today, apparently. Hello, John. Hi. Yeah, I'm in Boston. I was at. I did something at the uh, Kennedy Library last night, which was a joy. And uh, it's the first time I'd ever been there. It's very cool. Oh, yeah. That's a cool building. The, we were just discussing before we started the show whether we should have a an advice podcast, a dating advice podcast. So if you think and we, we decided should, the answer was no. If you think we should, please let <laughs> no, us know. No, we should not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could you think of a? I'm trying to think of a podcast that we would have less standing. Like I think ca- a car repair Ballet. podcast might be a car yeah, repair. Right. Car repair would be worse. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't have nothing to say on car repair. Um, hmm. Anyway, <laughs> okay. okay. I have. I, I wouldn't have nothing to say. What? Uh, what is? Well, but I mean, wouldn't people assume you have dating advice, John? You were just giving in the pre-show well, build-up. You were yeah, giving your dating true. advice, so you that's clearly true. have. A I know, lot but to say people would. That. Right, but people would assume that we would actually have absolutely nothing to say about car repair. You just had to stick up for yourself. You know how to change a tire. <sighs> yeah, exactly. On this week's Gab Fest. Dating advice. On this week's GabFest, Donald Trump fills out his cabinet with a bunch of generals, a doctor, a lawyer. How bad could they be? Then Pizzagate and the real life horrors of fake life news. Then is there any chance the Electoral College will reject Donald Trump? And is there any way to fix the Electoral College? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, the GabFest gift guide. We will pick our favorite objects, books, tools, presents of 2016. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And the Slate Plus team tells us that you can give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life who will receive all the benefits of membership, such as ad-free podcasts, bonus podcast segments, and access to our Slate academies. It's another way to support Slate's independent journalism. Give Slate Plus today at slate.com dot com slash give plus donald trump continues to fill up his cabinet this week he named ben carson a neurosurgeon as the secretary of housing and urban development he is going to tap john kelly a general to run the homeland security department uh oklahoma attorney general scott pruitt is his potential epa administrator james mattis mad dog mattis as trump keeps telling us a former marine general will be his secretary of defense if uh, approved and passing a waiver. And of course, Linda McMahon of, course. of world wrestling entertainment will be a small, will be the administrator of, of the small business administration, which is just that's so the contribution funny. from my so, state of Connecticut. Yes. Please yes, thank Connecticut. us. It's good to see Connecticut yeah. representing. She is not, she does not run a small business. She runs a huge business, but whatever. 
James Mattis, John, a lot of people who are who are very skeptical of Trump and and dubious about his presidency have have grabbed onto the Mattis news as like, oh, he'll be he's going to be the adult in the room. He's a he's the warrior monk. He's a wise man. He's going to protect the republic. You have spent a great deal of time with Mattis. You've written about him a lot. So tell us about him and and what. Uh, he represents as Secretary of Defense, potentially. Right. So I spent a lot of time with Mattis, spent the night at his house and spent, you know, I, I, this is one of those kind of interviews where you could talk for several hours, then have dinner, talk for several more hours, have breakfast, talk for, it was, <laughs> I say this because it's, uh, I miss those kinds of, of interviews. So what I found compelling about him was the mix, and this was for the story that you edited or the series that you edited on risk. One of the incendiary um, Mattis quotes that's out there is be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody you meet, Um, which some people read and think, oh, my God, this is a crazy man. But in that, I think in that quote, you see the kind of the balance of James Mattis, which is he is a Marine general. His primary job is to create plans for warfare. So that's what he does. But the other side of him, and the reason I was with him is because he was the co-creator with General Petraeus of the counterinsurgency manual, which is based on not going in and killing everybody. The exact opposite, taking off your Kevlar vest, taking off your sunglasses as you walk through the towns in Iraq to build connections with the towns, to get to stop rolling through with the tanks, to go and spend time trying to rebuild schools and rebuild trust and relationships so that you don't have to kill. He has this line about delay first one minute, then one hour, then one day, then one month, then one year, the hostilities, because you don't, you want to do everything you can to avoid war. But then if you are faced with ultimately having to go to war, then have a plan to win decisively. That's him as a uh, general. The challenge for him will be those skills make him a warrior, not a secretary of defense. Now, he just wrote a book about the over-reliance on generals in the Obama administration and in the Bush administration, really interesting, basically saying it's not the general's job to argue for war or argue for peace or argue for anything. Their job is to implement. It's the politician's job to make their case for why they should do what they're doing. And to muddy the waters is a bad idea. So... Trump seems to be muddying the water, so it'll be interesting to see how Mattis pushes back. He has built his career on pushing back against authority. He advocates, and one of the things that I found compelling in his argument for the systems you build as a general is he advocates for mavericks and people who push and 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 cause trouble with their ideas. So we'll see if that's what he does in the uh, Trump orbit. So, Emily, John gets to one of the key points about Trump's appointment so far, three generals already named to his uh, top of the administration, Mattis, of course, General Michael Flynn, who's his national security advisor, and uh, General John Kelly, who will run Homeland Security. General David Petraeus is apparently also under consideration for perhaps Secretary of State. Should we be alarmed that there are all these military men who are being tapped for such leadership positions. Obviously, when people say they're concerned about Trump's dictatorial tendencies, the the fact that there are a lot of generals who are coming forth to lead 
key parts of the country, key parts of the government may raise antennae. Well, he has to get waivers for them, right? Because they're supposed to have been out of the government for three years before they come back in. And some of them that's not true for. So there's kind of a built in concern about having so much military influence at the top of the federal government. That said, Trump has made other choices that seem to be on the kind of extreme right wing. And these generals don't fit that description. One can hope that generals in these roles will be very conscious of their constitutional obligations and be a kind of steadying influence. I guess I feel like there are so many concerns swirling around this cabinet. This is not the one that is keeping me up at night right well, so now. What, what, is, we'll, what is swirling? So you have, of course, Carson, who is appointed as HUD, who has no experience of any sort with anything like what HUD does, or as a senior administrator who's very spokesman. Armstrong Williams, a man who I profiled for City Paper 25 years ago. Awesome. I would note that Armstrong had said basically that, that Carson shouldn't have a shouldn't have a senior administrative role in the administration. And then Carson went and took this job. You have Pruitt appointed, who is the Oklahoma attorney general who's extremely anti-EPA, whose major activity re- relating to the EPA is suing them to try to prevent their regulations from going into effect, who will lead the EPA. What are your other concerns, Emily? What are your concerns that aren't that, oh, we have a bunch well, of Well, among the new set of choices for this week, yeah. I mean, so let's talk a little bit about HUD and the Fair Housing Act. So it was passed in 1968. It's the last of the big pieces of civil rights legislation to pass. And um, my colleague, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has an amazingly good piece in ProPublica about the history of how poorly and shoddily the Fair Housing Act has really been implemented over the decades. That started to change, honestly, in the Obama administration. One of the great pieces of history in Nicole's piece is that George Romney, who was the Secretary for Housing and Urban Development under Nixon, right after the Fair Housing Act change, he really tried to use it as a tool for desegregation. That's what the law has always stood for. It's always had this provision in it that the federal government has um, an obligation to, quote, affirmatively further fair housing and desegregation. Romney tried to put that into effect. Um, Nixon wanted nothing to do with it, tried to get Romney to be the ambassador to China. Instead, Romney eventually quit in frustration. And ever since then, HUD has done some amount of trying to actually stop discrimination against African-Americans and other minorities in housing, but really has not seen its role as ever blocking federal funds to cities and municipalities that are engaging in discrimination and where they place affordable housing units and how they rent using Section 8 vouchers. And so that there were new rules under the Obama administration to change some of that. And you look at what Carson has written about housing, which consists of one op-ed. I think it ran in the Washington Examiner or the Washington Times. And he just writes off any kind of efforts to address de- desegregation as what he calls, quote, social engineering, as if there's sort of this better default of um, of just, you know, allowing white city officials to to not give minorities real chances to live in other parts of the city, whether that's through redlining or whether it's by, you know, making sure that you segregate affordable houses in poor, mostly minority neighborhoods. Carson has expressed disinterest in changing any of that. That's the mandate of HUD. And so 
you know, that's what we're going to see. And I've been talking lo- too long to now launch into another monologue about Scott Pruitt. But you're right. He is completely pro fossil fuel industry. He submitted a letter to the EPA that was written by the a big oil and gas company in Oklahoma. He just changed a couple words and put his signature on it. He didn't say that was where it had come from. He denied being a tool of industry. But I'm not sure what exactly else we're supposed to conclude about him. And like Donald Trump, he has professed a lot of doubt that climate change is caused by people and our um, human activity. John, is this shaping up to be a cabinet that runs the administration yeah. since, since the president-elect does not have any strong apparent interest in the kind of nitty-gritty of, of how things operate. Is it going to be this cabinet that is going to play an enormous role in in defining the Trump administration, which would be counter to a lot of what we've seen in recent years where the cabinet has been weaker and weaker and weaker? Or, or yeah. will this be like it uh, under George W. Bush, where really the, the White House runs everything? And yeah, and the cabinet is is superficial. This is a fantastic question, David, and it's one of the um, thank you, John. Really, really interesting things to watch. Since Donald Trump is a chaos person, which is to say, he creates chaos because the destabilization allows him, as the creator of the chaos, who is comfortable in chaos, to then own the moment. We're going to have constant chaos from now all the way through because that's one of his governing talents. I mean, it's um, it's going to make it even more important that everybody knows where to what the, what to keep their eye on, where to keep their eye on the ball. And with respect to his presidency, do you keep the eye on the on the White House or do you keep it on the agencies? Because what presidents and, and I feel like it starts with Carter. Carter was a decentralizing president. He decided to give his cabinets all kinds of power and let them do what they wanted to do. They went off and did that. The problem was that a cabinet officer would go do something, and then the White House would catch the hell for it. And so Carter decided, well, wait a minute, if we're going to get blamed for lack of message discipline, and we're going to get blamed for everything all the agencies do, then we need to bring things inside the White House. So this is the political imperative that always creates the centralization of things within the White House. Trump doesn't really operate so much under those political rules. So in some cases, I think he's going to be happy to have it all outsourced to the to the agencies. On the other hand, he absolutely could kind of come crashing in saying, what the hell are you doing? So there could be these episodic moments of, of massive control. The, the administrator of health and human services in the Affordable Care Act, but then in legislation in general, gets to make all kinds of decisions that a micromanaging White House might want to check off, but a White House not micromanaging would just allow to go by. Right. And um, that person is Tom Price, right, who's wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act, who's right. Although in that case, so does so does so does Trump. And you might you could see a situation. Well, let's anyway, I guess the point is just pay attention to HHS and the EPA in a way we we haven't before, because I think they'll be relatively autonomous, except again, for these moments where there will be you know, where Donald Trump will want to assert himself, take credit for something, you know, that he wants to meddle in. But I, he's not a details guy. The uh, Can I just comment? I'm about to say something which is probably going to, I'm going to phrase in some way that's going to be horribly offensive. And Ooh, I'm excited. Just, just, no, it's not that. It's not interesting <laughs> enough. But there's some, there, there's a, there's an appalling tokenism in the Carson appointment, right? So it's like the black guy, we're going to name the black guy to the black department. And then I was looking kind of across uh, across it, how Trump has appointed people, and it 
it, 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 he's appointing to stereotype. Oh, HUD, that's the Department of Black People. So I'll appoint a black guy. His Treasury Secretary, no surprise at all, is a Jewish guy. Secretary of Defense, oh, we need a general. Secretary of State, he keeps talking about somebody who they looks all like look a Secretary the part. of State, which means it's going to, they all look the part. The, the Secretary of Education is an old lady. Like, who's a, te- well, who's a teacher? It's like old ladies are teachers. Secretary of Commerce, it's an old billionaire dude. It's so, uh, I, I predict there will be, the Secretary of Labor will be, that's it where his Hispanic appointment will be. Because, like, oh, they work. That's what it is. They're just workers. The Hispanics, I guarantee you. It's how it seems to be how he thinks. One question which I'm curious about, Emily, is you have in, in Pruitt somebody who clearly does not like the EPA's mission as it is currently constituted. You have in Betsy DeVos, who's going to run the Department of Education, somebody who does not like the mission of the Department of Education. Ben Carson, as you pointed out, does not really have an interest in public housing or its or the mission of the Housing and Urban Development Department. Is the idea that you appoint these people so that they can change the mission or so that they can make this administration – is it is it to make the agency incompetent or to make it competent in a totally different way, which is antithetical to how it's been I running? think you can – Because I don't see what the administrator of the EPA does if he doesn't actually believe that the EPA should regulate ah, But things. you can change the mission and you can also agree to big budget cuts that starve the beast. I mean, who better to slash the budget of the EPA than Scott Pruitt, who doesn't think the EPA should regulate? Right. So make it incompetence. So make the EPA worse or just not do its job, not change what it does. Just right. I mean, not do its job. And then the other thing is there are important court cases coming up where you can change the government's position. The Obama administration has been defending the rule that it put out about the Clean Power Act that asks power plants to change what they're doing so that they're spewing less carbon dioxide, et cetera, into the air. You change that rule and then maybe the court case over the Clean Power power plant rule goes away. Change the position and then you starve the beast. That's that's what I would do if I were them. That feels right on the on the EPA. I wonder if I, social engineering, uh, that that question and that word and that phrase will get thrown around a lot and it um, gets used as a pejorative against the um, Obama administration. If you look at the person that is likely to administer the Medicaid program, the requirements for Medicaid and using health savings accounts, um, it's all, it's basically social engineering. In other words, it's trying to encourage better behavior. I mean, you know, basically on healthcare in particular, you try to get people to behave better, go do checkups, catch things early so their costs don't rise because when you treat them late, it's more expensive. So that is trying to encourage a kind of social behavior through policy. So it's inevitable that you're going to be in, end up doing some social engineering. So it's interesting sort of what, where the places of social engineering are and where and how they will work in a conservative or I don't even know that we're going to, we can call the Trump administration conservative in all ways. But anyway, that's one thing that interests me with respect to the Department of Education. So obviously on the healthcare front, it's interesting, but also to, to David's point about Betsy DeVos, I think she may be different than at EPA, which is she doesn't agree with the what, what the Department of Education does now, but I think in the way that the Obama administration tried to use federal education money to encourage behaviors at the local level. I think she's. I think she will try to do that. I right. think that the stuff that was claimed as social engineering in Obama's terms, I think they will try and do a version of their own social engineering. They will just do it with different uh, goals in mind. Right. Yeah. No. They'll do vouchers and so charters. 
everyone's right. social, social engineering is a meaningless the term because it, it acts as if there's some default, which is not social engineering. When the government regulates, it channels right. people's behavior. When it doesn't regulate, it rechannels people's behavior. There is no other thing that government does. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Sunday afternoon at the Rosenplatz House in Northwest Washington. We were planning, as we often do, as probably the Dickersons often do, a, an afternoon quick trip up to Politics and Prose, do some book shopping, followed by a snack at Little Red Fox. Daughter is, uh, as is her want, is online, checking Twitter, and says, uh, there's an active shooter. So we don't go up to Politics and Prose because the local pizza parlor in very quiet, uh, rich, upper northwest neighborhood of Washington has been invaded by Edgar Madison Welch, who is a North Carolina man who was ultimately arrested on Sunday after he had driven up from North Carolina to to perform a self-evaluation about whether the series of lies propagated by white nationalists and troublemakers and internet nutbags, uh, lies designed to chaff the political system, whether they were true, whether that in fact there was a child sex ring uh, orchestrated by high-level Democrats being uh, conducted out of the non-existent basement uh, in Comet Pizzeria whether there were occult rituals and blood drinking uh, taking place in this pizza place where my son had been at a birthday party six days earlier. The Welch's uh, attack terrified and endangered customers, of course. It shut down a lot of D.C. for the afternoon. And it's a result of just some completely malicious propaganda fomented by malefactors, uh, some of the malefactors were merely gullible. Others of them are truly malicious. It was multiplied and magnified by uh, lots of people, including the people in the Trump administration or the would-be people in the Trump administration. And it's totally confounding. Emily, what the hell can we do about this massive industry of lies and willing disbelief that has arisen in the last couple of years, that is born and lives primarily on the internet, but now can spill into real-world experience all too easily. Well, as 
consumers of information, we can all be careful and um, skeptical about what we believe and what kind of information we disseminate on social media. And then the overlords of social media, in particular Facebook, need to sit up straight and think about how they can have some responsibility here. You know, Mark Zuckerberg famously after the election didn't want to admit that Facebook had any responsibility for the spread of fake news and said that it had no impact on the election. It just seemed like he was totally abdicating his role. Since then, other folks at Facebook have um, been seeming to take this more seriously. And There are ways in which social media and particular Facebook in which everything you see is driven by an algorithm. Facebook can, without outright banning fake news or particular fake news sites, because Facebook doesn't want to take that that step, Facebook can change uh, the value it gives to certain platforms over others in what people see in their news feeds and what Facebook is promoting through its algorithm. But Facebook has to have human editors to make that work. And last summer, they got spooked by accusations that their human editors were biased against conservative media outlets. Didn't seem like it was really there was much to that allegation, but they got rid of all the human editors. And that has proved to be a huge problem. Facebook needs to take its editorial role in the world to heart and really admit that it's playing this massive function as the fire hose for news, the place where people are getting information. And without necessarily blocking people from sharing what they want to share, have some way of not presenting everything in this flattened um, same box that seems to give equal credibility to a post from, you know, CBS or CNN or Fox as it does to something from a made up publication. John, at the moment, this really only works on the right. The people who've studied this have said that the fake news is is overwhelmingly a problem on the right, that it's people on the right who are sharing fake news, which stories that are critical and deplorable about things that the left is doing, that Hillary Clinton is doing, that um, Democrats are doing, is the fact that this is really not bipartisan, that it's monopartisan, does that make it harder to stamp out? Uh, I don't know. For me, what makes it hard to stamp out is, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out where to take, where to grab a, grab a hold of this complicated issue. Where the partisanship gets in here is a couple of things. One, the New York Times had a great piece about fake news this week in which they quote a guy from, I think, Minnesota, who basically says, it's like a hockey game. We have our goons, they have their goons. And this gets, I guess, to Temley's tolerance point, which is, and his argument was, yeah, of course, this is all baloney, but, you know... Uh, to the extent that these stories get people I don't like all exercised and in a flutter, that's great because I we're, we're in a big uh, competition here. And yeah, it's not great that there's fighting in the hockey game, but I'm glad I have the guy who can beat up the other team because I don't like the other team. There's a cost to that. Now, I'm the Comet Pizza thing is a little weird because it's, um, you know, one crazy person who reads something um We'll never be able to stamp that well, out but now. You can argue he's not that the first person who showed up at Comet. He's the first person who showed up with a gun. But there's another guy who'd shown right. up and was filming Comet. And there was this and was stream of it. harassment and, and there was people coming at this right. whole block. And there's, yeah, the real-world harassment of, yeah, just po- all, poisonous, vicious phone calls. I also want to add in— And not only, just for Comet, of, of the stores up and down that block. And the FBI, so it's not— If only I could get out the next damn sentence. Oh, come on. So, so you don't want to criticize one person for a single act. Wait, the problem you don't want to criticize one person? 
person was... for a single act when that act is going no, 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 in and no. shooting oh, someone? Oh, come on. Jesus, come on. My point is you don't want to uh, – criticize is the wrong word. Thank you for giving me the – half an inch to to uh try to describe it the point is that one crazy person who goes off and does a crazy act you want to recognize that that's not you can't like throw the entire entire new set of rules around that in this case though you have a story that was that had lots of different people following it 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 galloped along and had lots of different um it affected lots of different people so to dismiss it as a single person who just was one crazy person who saw some random story doesn't get at the idea that this had a much bigger following out there and that just saying like these are our goons beating up their goons that there are costs and this is uh, possibly one of the costs where it gets into a partisan issue or a partisan tangle is conservatives will say, well, the story about Michael Brown saying, you know, don't shoot and putting his hands up was used as a rallying cry, created a condition of uh, anger towards the police. That was a story that turned out to not be true. So what they would say is, well, that was fake news, too. And yet that wasn't disseminated by crazy news sites that was discussed on mainstream news sites. And so in your conversation about fake news, you have people saying, well, the stories that were wrong and propagated by mainstream news. So why isn't that fake news too? Which obscures the obvious difference, which is in one case, a story about a child sex ring in pizza has no connection with the natural normal world that we live in and is completely crazy. Whereas in the Michael Brown case, while the hands up, don't shoot may not have happened, there was an instance in which a policeman shot a young man and there were confusing facts. And that's a little bit more close to the world we live in, as opposed to the Kama Pizza story, which is not only fiction, but like the most disturbed and Baroque and weird fiction you can imagine. I think it's also important to add that the Black Lives Matter movement was not simply about the shooting of Michael Brown and that there were, as obviously we know and have talked about, several, many other shootings of unarmed black people in which the facts did hold up exactly as they were initially reported that have fueled that movement. Right. I mean, I know you're not making an exact equivalence here, but I think it's just important to make clear that the weight of evidence behind the Black Lives Matter movement is powerful. And that is not true for this fake news story we're talking about right now. At all. Of course, as I just said. But the point is that when you're talking to people who are in a position to draw that equivalence, getting back to David's initial point, that's where the partisanship comes in. And being able to make very clear why the two are so wildly different, even though they share the fact that things were said that turned out not to be so, that thing that they share is such a small matter relative to the many other different ways in which they are totally not comparable. But if you are talking about partisanship and the way that partisans process this news stuff, there needs to be a way to explain that difference relatively quickly to people who are apt to use misreporting or incorrect reporting or the hurly-burly of a developing story as an excuse for why it's okay to have their own fake news because they see what the other side is doing as 
putting out fake news too. Can I throw in one more um, to me? I'm sure do you do disturbing set of facts this week. The FBI arrested someone who was issuing death threats to one of the parents of a child killed at the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, and the person issuing the death threats was like the comet pizza shooter inspired by wild completely false conspiracy theories about how Sandy Hook was somehow made up or a hoax or a government plant. There is just something, I suppose, John, you might argue that two separate incidents don't make a pattern. But I do think we are seeing something dangerous here. And the fact that Michael Flynn and his son, who Michael Flynn is still part of the Trump administration that will be coming in, and his son was um, had a role for at least some amount of time being his father, to have these people not disavow these completely false, damaging, outrageous rumors that they help spread, that to me is tremendously dispiriting. And I deeply don't understand why that goes beyond partisanship. You should note that these are from Alex Jones of InfoWars, who has said that Sandy Hoax is a hoax. And Alex Jones, who is a a huge Trump supporter and who Trump is aligned with. And praised after the Um, election and thanked. Yes. Yes. But I think... We have to remember that the tool, going back to John's point from the earlier segment, Trump is a chaos candidate. The the tool that that demagogues and and uh, dictators use is you churn up emotion, you churn up fake stories, you churn up anxiety and fear, and you create the swirl. It's a classic tool of how dictators and demagogues rule. And I don't think that Trump is himself the source of fake news stories. I don't think he is. He wait, wait, wait! Don't excuse uh, you know, him. Millions of people them. voting illegally. I'm not going to excuse him. I'm not going to excuse him. I'm not going to excuse him. But what I think he did, I think what I think he does is that he he has recognized to his tremendous advantage how much the the sort of the anxiety and the fear and the anger and the and the emotion that he can work up over things. Uh, benefits him, and what I would call for, what I want, what I seek, and I realize as I as I watch Obama's back as he walks off um, walks off westward uh, to whatever good future he deserves, is that he the wonderful thing one wonderful thing about Obama is that he he was he governed in a very unemotional way for the most part that he was a very a very calm temperamentally calm kind of person. And the thing that we want to hope for, we want to normalize politics. We're in a state, and we have been because of largely because of Trump over the past two years, not entirely because of Trump, uh, where we're, everything has heightened emotion around it, around politics. People feel much more strongly about it. They are kind of much more anxious and worked up and, and tense about it than really than the state of the economy, the state of their own lives, the state of the world would warrant. And that just makes people much more upset. And instead, People just need to like channel this back into sports and into celebrity watching that as long as people sort of are as energized about Trump and about what Trump is doing and about the all the swirl around him, that Trumpism wins and that kind of frenzy wins. In some sense, the, the thing that we want is not you have, can't wish fake news away. You just want people to stop being as interested mm-hmm. in news and just like just care a lot less and just be just just be well, like, oh, get back to get back to day to day. Because as long as they are as long as they're sort of highly worked up over politics, that model is going to win. I don't go to the circus. I don't think you mean care less. I think you mean, as I do, I'm going to now assume you agree with me but with, <laughs> with no evidence, that you want a slower, more... Deliberate? Deliberative? Um, 
more discerning and deliberative and the same level of care. But it is, I think what you're describing is there, one of the problems with fake news is Trump plays on the, the outrage at the latest things he has done and that he's hoping they will bite. Um, so that he'll get in a fight with the actors at Hamilton or people will jump on his tweet about, about Boeing. Cause obviously, David, you want people to care about all the underlying stuff they care about, just not to take the bait so easily. Well, but I don't think any of the things that, that have been represented in these, uh, in the fake news actually matter at all. I don't think any of them. They don't. They shouldn't care about it. They shouldn't care about. You mean like a crazy rumor with no evidence? They should care when somebody shows up with a gun. Well, no, they shouldn't care about the the crazy rumors, democratic occultism, or 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 the just just the all that chaff. There's just every ninety eight percent of what has been thrown out around what's been happening in American politics is just chaff. It's horrible chaff. Like you should care that that Medicare might be privatized, right? That's definitely a thing yeah. to care about. But you shouldn't be caring about every single freaking little thing. I do think that we would be so much better served if, in fact, the overwhelming majority of Americans really stopped paying attention to politics and just we just sort of let the – this is why you elect Demo- – you have – you have a, a republic where you elect people who represent you. So you elect them, they represent you, they carry forth legislation, that legislation is debated. And in fact, the more the populace is is churned up constantly about this, the worse the government, the worse the country runs. The way that we focus on politics now is totally unproductive and poisonous. And so people should It seems shouldn't like there's something really wise in what you're saying and something totally bogus at the same time. So yes, let's not get distracted that's, that's the name that's my auto that's the title of my autobiography all right, yes Emily. let's not get distracted by all the chaff that is constantly being churned up by trump and his people absolutely but the notion that we don't want people to care about the workings of their government or the impact that government policies have surely you're not arguing that come on like that's what i was trying to say <laughs> i mean david well i guess i'm what i guess what i'm trying to say is if the if the choice is that's a, not the a choice don't set up a it's constantly choice. being frothed oh, up that is constantly being frothed uh, up by a, by a set of liars or populace which pays no that's attention ridiculous. at all to what's being done that's by the government i think i would choose a populace that pays well, no attention I, i'm not really well that's the point the, of straw man i just think that's I find that totally unsatisfying. I mean, one thing that we should be doing over the next four years is paying attention to the impact of the policies this administration puts into place. Not, you know, who whether Donald Trump is having a meeting with Al Gore, who then gets suckered into making some like, oh, don't worry, statement. Everything's going to be great on climate change on the day of Scott Pruitt's nomination to head the EPA. But what the actual impact of these policies are on the real people who live in this country. Uh, that's what we need to pay attention to. I totally agree. And I that's where I have that's my version of what David is saying, which is <laughs> less alarm, more explaining, which is every piece that I read about Pruitt, it's like, oh, people are up in arms, and this environmental person says this is gonna be terrible, and he's in the pocket of industry and a blah. And it goes on for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. I want stories that now start by saying this person was chosen. Here are the five things that he could affect. And here are the five ways that will affect regular people. And here are the five next things to watch for the minute he gets keys to his office. Like, because what ends up happening is that the nine paragraphs of alarm just feel like the general sort of, it feels like chaff. 
It feels not that much different. They may be all totally wise uh, desert fathers who are who know exactly the the way this is all going to play out. But the quotes of alarm just sound like quotes of alarm, and we hear that from both sides. And it's like, oh, everybody's up in arms. More explaining, less being up in arms. Would you include in that, John, the coverage that describes people's records? Because that does seem to me important. That's like evidence and facts. You're totally right. No, I think past behavior is a predictor. So, and that's where when people say, you know, uh, are worried about coverage of Donald Trump. I mean, past behavior and what they've done in the past and where the choices they've made and the choices that inform their decision making are crucial. That that's the context for the job they're coming into. And it's a context for all their future decisions. That's the way human beings work. You know, we, we build knowledge based on what we've decided and done in the past. So absolutely, the records are really important, uh, as long as people don't, you know, lean on the evidence, but for creating a context in which their statements on the job or their actions take place. No, I think you're exactly right. That's basically all we've got to go on until they right. start making decisions. All right, we're going to leave it there. Although I'm going to not leave it there because <laughs> I'm going to give myself one final word, which is the, the kind of people who are interested in the story you're talking about, John, are totally a different cohort than the kind of people who are fake news. The kind of people who are being fake news yes. are people who, who, yeah, okay, that's all I'm saying. Democrats are tearing their hair out about the Electoral College, which will meet soon in various states to vote and ratify Donald Trump's election. The fretfulness is taking two forms. The first is, could electors be faithless enough to deny Donald Trump the presidency? The second is, the Electoral College is hideously biased, especially against blue America, and it's a it's an old-timey, archaic, completely broken non-representative system which denies equal representation to voters, unconstitutionally denies equal representation to, to voters, especially to voters who, as it turns out, are paying the most taxes and getting the least representation. Those of us who live in coastal cities are being especially deprived. So, Emily, let's talk about the two separate kind of legal questions here. Uh, one is the legal arguments about whether electors could be faithless. And the second is the legal arguments about whether the Electoral College itself is hopelessly flawed and is constitutionally flawed. So what are the legal arguments for being faithless as an elector? Is there anything that to prevent electors themselves from voting against the state, uh, how, how their state voted? Probably not, but we're not really sure because this has been so little tested. There's very little case law on it. I mean, it looks like the Electoral College can make its own decision. It has some kind of independent identity from the actual electorate. But we've never had an electoral college that's refused as a body to follow the choices that it was tasked to follow by the voters. So we don't really know a whole lot about that. And to me, the second question you asked is the much more interesting substantive one, which is, Basically, why do we have this system that has led in in this election and in other elections to the loser, in this case, by quite a large margin? We're getting close to, I think, three million more votes for Hillary Clinton in this context. And yet the loser of the popular vote contest will be president. The origins of the Electoral College, Akhil Amar at Yale Law School, makes a powerful argument that it was not a kind of big state versus small state um, mechanism, which I think is what a lot of us learned in high school. It really had to do with preserving slavery. It's like the three-fifths clause. It gave southern states a way to count their slaves as part of their population, 
and have more political power as a result. Larry Lessig, uh, another law professor, I think, at Harvard, has been making an argument lately that the unconstitutional part of this is the winner-take-all aspect of it that most, almost all the states, except for Nebraska and Maine, follow. And so basically what Lessig is arguing is there's, okay, yes, there's tension here between one person, one vote, and the way the Electoral College favors certain states heavily over other states. And and it's really incredible how much the, that favoring is, right? I mean, we're talking about California having a population that's 66 times the population of Wyoming and getting 18 times the Electoral College votes. So Lessig says um, we can't do anything about the Electoral College setup itself without amending the Constitution. But you could have a court challenge about the winner-take-all mechanism that the states are allowing for. And that would be another way of changing the Electoral College. I'm not convinced by the argument that you could do that retroactively and affect the results of this past election because we just had the election. Those were the rules. But going forward, one could imagine, in theory, this kind of challenge. And then the other thing is a whole bunch of states at the moment, unfortunately, all of them blue states, States have signed on to this compact saying, we agree, we'll send our electors to the winner of the national popular vote once there are enough states with enough electoral votes signed up to make this a binding pledge. And that is like an easy way for the states to change the way power is allocated. The problem, of course, is that some states would be losers and they would have to agree that for the good of the polity and the democracy, we should make this change. So we'll see. I love the National Popular Vote Interstate right. Compact, which you just described. I think it's so genius. It doesn't seem to require any constitutional change. It doesn't even seem to require any legislative action. There, the legal scholarship, undoubtedly, there would be a legal challenge to it. The idea being that states with representing 270 electoral votes sign on to this compact. They will agree to pool their electoral votes and supply them to whoever has won the popular vote, which means that, let's say, Ohio is one of the signatories to this compact and it has voted for a Republican in its own state, but the a Democrat has won the, the popular vote, that Ohio would still assign its electoral college votes to the Democrat. So it would it would go against the, the state's own vote. They're right now, there are 165 electoral votes represented by the states that have approved the compact. It's not entirely impossible that it gets enough electoral votes to go into effect because the states that don't want it to go into effect are the purple states, states that, that are the tipping point states, which hold the balance of power. Obviously, very blue states want this to happen because it's a democratic idea. But there are even some very red states which currently get no influence on the actual presidential election that would have an incentive to sign on to something like this, to have their votes suddenly start to matter in the election. A very a state like Texas, for example, a very red state that has a lot of people might want its votes, might want to to be pandered to in a presidential election and might consider something like this. So and it's it's past legislatures in in um, in red states. So it's not it's not beyond the realm of possibility that it could go somewhere. Um, Why but, wouldn't that compact be undone if one of the states decided they didn't like the outcome in the way that people don't like the Donald Trump outcome? That's a good question. You mean, could the electors in that state? So you have a state slate of electors who are elected in Ohio, and they're like, screw it, we voted for, you know, we voted for Republican, why should we assign to a Democrat? Yeah, I think that I think that yeah. the terms of the compact would have to be pretty strict. And it, it would have to have some sort of binding and like force. a lot but, of things in our system, uh, yeah. it would have to be governed by norms and conventions in addition to or as opposed to law. I mean, that's 
something we're going to be talking about a lot in the next four years as norms shift and change and fall away. But that is one instance in which you can create a new agreement and people can follow it because they agreed to follow it. I guess what I was saying, as I think about it, that that compact seems to me the best chance for change because I don't see a Republican Supreme Court. There's not going to be a constitutional amendment to overturn the Electoral College. And I also don't see a Republican Supreme Court accepting Larry Lessig's arguments about the unconstitutionality. That's right. Although happen. it's important to remember that, you know, crazy legal arguments like the equal protection argument that decided Bush versus Gore, uh, sometimes they they need to be aired because sometimes they do carry the day or that at least they seem to be less crazy once they're out there. So I wouldn't totally dismiss it. One more point, too, about having a national popular vote system um, that I think I also owe to Akhil Amar, which strikes me as really important, is that right now states have no incentive in this system to make it easier to vote. In other words, if you, you pay no penalty in the Electoral College if fewer of your people vote. You get the same number of um, electors, no matter what. By contrast, if we changed the system and it was all the national popular vote, you would have more political power, more sway over the pre- the future president as a state if more of your people voted, if you became a place where there was a huge amount of turnout. And when you think about the kind of separate partisan movement toward voter suppression and a way for making it easier to vote that's going on right now, this kind of change that we're talking about would be a counterforce that could actually be really important. Although I realize that this is all hypothetical. That's a great point. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, all those poor people in California who vote. Doesn't count. Or Or in DC where I live. It doesn't (laughs) matter. It doesn't matter if we all, you know, whatever. I don't know what what the vote count was in DC, but I'm sure it was at least 80% to Clinton. But each of those incremental votes made no difference. And as we see more voter ID and more voter restrictions pass, you know, places like Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, et cetera, they would have a disincentive to do those things as a state if having more people vote increased your um, authority. I think, unfortunately, Emily, this is like a super long game. I know. Uh, If you're a Democrat and you want this, this is a very long game because it's, it's contingent on some set of Republicans deciding that also this that the way the system works is is not good for them. And right now, I don't think there's a there's any Republican constituency that thinks that. I think they that Republicans have decided like lower vote counts, increased power of small states, those are all things that benefit Republicans. And so that's going to persist for as long as right. I, I mean, there was talk of the idea of Trump winning the popular vote and losing the Electoral College. And if that had happened, there might be kind of a bipartisan sense we need to change this. But of course, it didn't. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are uh, pondering new ways to remake the Electoral College in your home when you're sitting by the fire. We finally have a fireplace in my house. Hannah made me reopen our fireplace so we may actually have a fire, which we will sit beside Hannah and I and our children. What did that What did that require? Well, it didn't require anything. It's just I hate fireplaces <laughs> and I resisted us using our fireplace. It doesn't draw very well. And You hate them based on what? Based on, do you want the, the true deep plotsy in psychology? I am a very competent person. I'm somebody who prides myself on my competence. There's I almost everything I do, I do at like a B, B plus level. I'm a terrible maker of fires. Oh. And it embarrasses me. And because oh, it embarrasses is, me, I've resisted it. And I've become an anti-fire person. This can be person. remedied. 
This is I, this can become this can I be know, remedied. So I know, easily. but it's 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 very much about my own frailty and weakness and incompetence. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, there's I thought you were making an environmental claim against David. Uh, I feel no. like John could is, uh, show you how anyway, to make I'm a good fire and like two. You would catch onto it so quickly. It's totally something you would be good at. You know what? The the fact that you just said that it's like fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. It's like what I really want is for my peer John Dickerson, oh, my handsomer, better paid peer John Dickerson, to condescendingly come and teach me how to make a fire. That would make me feel better. <laughs> fuck you, just Emily. Here, right? if we so, that, so that every time you made a fire, it'd be like. Every time you made a fire, it'd be like when you shave and you remember that yeah. guy who taught you Oh my you God, to shave. we exactly. should be grateful exactly. to each other for these life lessons. You are not so anxious and insecure that you can't appreciate the help and guidance of a dear Excellent friend. Excellent rebuttal. Truly. Uh, are you <laughs> yeah. done? How about giving us a cocktail chatter? How about a cocktail chatter Oh, instead? my cocktail chatter is going to bring down the mood. I'm really sorry, but I can't let this week go by without expressing incredible dismay that the police officer who killed Walter Scott in North Carolina was not convicted this week. There was one holdout on this jury. This is a case in which we have a video of the police officer unloading and shooting shooting someone in the back who was running away from him and then appearing to plant the gun next to Scott as he lay there dying. I just, I can't, I can't stomach this result. There's going to be a retrial. Uh, Governor Nikki Haley and many other people called for that and said how important it was. Jelani Cobb has an interesting piece in The New Yorker about this result that I recommend reading. And uh, we'll just have to see what happens next. But it just seemed like exactly the last sign we needed right now about American race relations to have this officer not face conviction. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is uh, a wonderful interview that I saw with Andrew Wiles, who's a mathematician, and he's a um, he's a legend for proving Fermat's last theorem, which is a problem that had been bedeviling mathematicians for centuries. And I don't even know what Fermat... I mean, I couldn't even possibly begin to explain Fermat's last theorem, but what I love about this interview is it's an interview in um, Plus... Uh, magazine, which is a magazine, an internet magazine, which is devoted to uh, promoting the beauty and practical applications of mathematics. Um, And in the interview, they ask him about what it was like to search for that proof for so long. And it's basically an interview about excitement and illumination that is found in a long private battle with a vexing problem. And most people would think of that as like, total drudgery and doom but the interview is he's like a he's like a pixie a no like just absolutely alive with the fun of working this long problem and he testifies to the faith that you need to have and hold to keep working at a long problem and the kind of joy that he finds in that long um, pursuit. And the interview goes on and asks all kinds of interesting questions like, is mathematics discovered or invented? In other words, is it a natural law that we just come upon after long searching, or is it something that mankind has invented to order their world? But the other thing I liked about his interview is he talks about how to solve these big problems, you need to have a slightly bad memory because you need to forget the way you approached a problem the first time. If you do that little forgetting, then you uh, 
put it aside and then approach it afresh in a way the next time. And that that was one of the reasons or one of the ways he was able to, to solve this incredibly difficult problem. And then I guess the other thing that I loved about it was just that you learn to enjoy the process of uncertainty and of unsolvability and just be okay with that. Not kind of, I mean, it's, I guess what we learn about anything in sports. Most people learn it through sports anyway, which is that you just have to endure the training and the, the grueling part. Uh, and just be okay with it. And he describes this moment or this process where when you achieve a certain level of mastery in that craft, you recognize that faced with a problem that seems impossible, you will find a way. You have a sufficient number of talents that, you know, you're going to get there. It's going to require a lot of work, but you will ultimately get there, that it's not insoluble. And I remember feeling that way with with certain kinds of writing where I thought, oh, my, this is going to be, this is impossible. But then at some point feeling like, you know, like it'll work out somehow. Like it'll, I'll get there. I don't know how. It's going to be messy. I may need an editor to f- put me on the right path, but it's not something that I can't solve through simply the application of, of will and time. Anyway, so I encourage everybody, we'll put a link to the interview, and I encourage everybody to read it. Three things. One, does he to conclude whether it's in- invented or discovered? He basically ducks. He basically, he basically says, we're not philosophers, but he says, I don't know of a mathematician who doesn't think that it's discovered, which is to say, th- he believes that it's something that's in, that it was, that is discovered, not invented. All right. Two, uh, I love that idea that you need a bit of forgetting. Three, I was waiting to hear what Plus Mag- Plus Magazine, there's so many different magazines that Plus could represent. It could be like the magazine for for positive thinkers. It could be, I thought it was going to be like a magazine for plus size mathematicians. That was my other thinking. <laughs> I didn't even know where you were going with it. It was exciting. Um, it's such a, it's a good name. Plus, a magazine for addenda. Um, all right, that's a great chatter. So my chatter today is a double chatter. Uh, just one very quick thing and one slightly longer thing. Slightly longer thing is there's a wonderful place in Williamstown, Vermont called Knight's Spiderweb Farm. It is run by an elderly couple. And what it is, is a farm (laughs) where they have built uh, frames that attract spiders. And these spiders come and they live there for a season and they build beautiful webs and then lay eggs, die, you know, Charlotte's web it up. And Will Knight figured out a way to essentially preserve these spider webs as art to paint them and turn them into decoration, turn them into to their, their plaques, which have this beautiful whole web on them. They're gorgeous. I went there last summer. It is, it's just a magical object that he's figured out how to create. The spiders are not killed, I would note, in the process of making this. They're not harmed in it. And it's just a crazy, weird thing he's invented. It's beautiful. It's strange. It's a natural wonder uh, turned into a piece of human art. And the spiderweb farm, or much of the farm, burned down this fall. And they need um, funds to rebuild it. And I would just urge you to check out their GoFundMe page, GoFundMe dot uh, com slash rebuild hyphen the hyphen spider hyphen web hyphen farm rebuild the spider web farm and give them some money it's just a special place and deserves deserves a long life the other thing which is something that john i'm sure you know about emily you probably do too and i'm probably the last person to come to it i finally heard the johnny cash 
bridge over troubled water, which he did very late in life with, I think, Fiona Apple maybe singing with him. And it's unbelievable. Mm. It is such a beautiful yes, song. Agreed. If you guys haven't heard it, it is just out of sight. So Johnny Cash's Bridge Indeed. Over Troubled Water. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producers, Jocelyn Frank, Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. The entire roster of Panoply podcasts is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating. You can search for us in the iTunes store, Slate Political GabFest. For Emily Bazelon and John, the Firemaker Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Talk to you next week. Hey.